Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we continue our mentorship journey where we help one of our listeners workshop their original pilot from inception to final draft. And we are once again joined by Ben Warner. Welcome, Ben. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being with us. And uh, this week is step number four in our process as we take a look at the first draft of Ben's one-hour drama pilot, The Pirate King, which you can read at paperteam.co slash 201. Let's get started. All right. So as always, we're going to recap what we're doing here with this whole mentorship program in the first place. Uh, our goal is for this to be a monthly workshop where we can help a writer, one of our listeners, create a new original TV pilot script from the idea all the way through to the final draft. Now, in our previous 2020 mentorship episodes, we've gone from the concept to the story beats to a rough outline, a more detailed outline on Ben's drama pilot, The Pirate King. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth, a lot of notes and discussion, but now we're getting towards the pointy end of the cutlass as this week Ben has written the full <laughs> first draft of his script. Uh, if you want to hear Ben's thoughts on going from the detailed outline through to the first draft and all the challenges that he faced, you can take a listen to our Patreon-exclusive episode where we tackled all of those questions and more at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And as always, we want this process to be interactive with you guys listening at home. We would love your thoughts, your feedback, your interactions, whether that's via email, Twitter, the Facebook group, uh, smoke signals, carrier pigeon, whatever it may be, uh, we want to hear from you. (laughs) And on that note, we actually got an email off of Ben's recent mentorship update. Ben's mentorship updates have been excellent. I definitely feel they are must listen if you are following along to this uh, process in his own journey. And uh, a lot of the comments that he made in his latest updates we will discuss in the second half of this episode where we look at his first draft. But there was one element of that update in particular that we wanted to highlight at the top here because we got a response off of that specific clip which we are about to play right now. Another issue that came up was the fact that Marie Laveau herself was a slave owner. She was a a free black woman, but was also owned, I think, like seven slaves through her life. And one of these overall arcs that I've had from Marie that I've been floating around is the idea that she starts an early abolitionist movement. And I was a little worried about depicting the character that way when it would be at odds with her real life persona. So, and I don't think I'm the kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a white suburban kid. I don't think it's my place necessarily to make the final call on that. So, I reach out to some friends of, you know, varying cultural backgrounds to kind of get a better perspective on how to handle that. And the general consensus was to be respectful and definitely avoid doing a white savior trope with either Jean or Louise. If Marie's going to be the abolitionist movement leader, it's going to be her, not Louise. Uh, but to ultimately just tell the story I wanted to tell. Fortunately, uh, the pilot doesn't really dive into the subplots too much. Like I said, there's some vague mentionings of things. You might start to kind of put it together yourself, but it's not outright stated. So there's still some wiggle room to pivot there. But if this show ever were to get made, it would absolutely demand a diverse writer's room. You need a lot of different perspectives because there's so many different perspectives we're getting and so many different cultural backgrounds for the characters in the show itself. You just need a lot of diversity to handle these story arcs, I think. 
All right. So the reason why we were bringing up this in particular is, uh, as mentioned moments ago, we got an email from one of our listeners that we wanted to address on the podcast because this discussion and conversation about representation and diversity in the writer's room and on screen has been an ongoing topic in this industry for a long time. And we've uh, discussed this at length on the podcast, but we wanted in this particular instance to highlight some elements that we feel our listeners might be misguided about. So here is an email from a Rob saying, quote, guys, I just became a member of your Patreon and want to thank you for all the added value that being a subscriber has given me. But today I heard Ben's latest update regarding his Pirate King pilot script and I was moved to write to you. I've been following your journey with Ben with great interest because he is writing a pilot script that seems very similar to what I like to spec. However, it was disappointing to me that when Ben discovered the compelling historical fact that Marie Laveau was herself a slave owner, his first instinct was to declare that uh, I'm a white suburban kid, I don't think it's my place to make the final call, and completely veer away from the history and make her the opposite, i.e. some kind of uh, historical proto-abolitionist. It's Ben's story, and he can do whatever he wants with it, but finding out an unexpected wrinkle in a historical person's biography such as this seems like it's just the kind of detail that could really hook an audience's interest if developed properly. He is the creator of the script, and it is his final call to make as far as the writing of the pilot spec goes anyway. Ben said he asked his friends of varying cultural backgrounds for notes, and they gave him the basic advice to be uh, respectful and avoid a white savior trope, but imagine someone giving the advice to be respectful and the depiction of Tony Soprano or Walter White, what if the way you're designing the character to provoke the reaction from the audience that you want precludes respectfulness? What then? Are you going to pull your punches and make something mediocre? In my experience, sensitivity readers are just like any other form of beta reader that you show your work to for notes. It's interesting to hear their feedback, but you should never completely hand their reins over to your story uh, or anyone else expecting them to give you permission to tell your story. I don't mean to sound too harsh because Ben sounds like a good guy and I really enjoy hearing your work with him, but I was driving in my car and listening to Ben's update, and when he mentioned the detail that Marie Laveau was a slave owner, it gave me a dozen ideas to pitch based on if we were in a writer's room together, whereas a quote, proto-abolitionist, end quote, gave me nothing and would probably take a lot more shoe leather to make plausible since you are creating something whole cloth and trying to fuse it into the mostly historical events of the show. Anyway, keep up the great work and good luck to Ben on the next draft of the script. Sincerely, Rob. And quote. So there's a lot to dissect and process in this email and uh, this whole conversation. But one of the big things that we wanted to tackle here in the first place was what I feel is a bit of a misguided sentiment, conflating sensitivity readers or even any kind of script readers with the idea of reaching out to other people with more appropriate and relevant experiences to your story and getting their feedback on your story from that perspective, as opposed to the writing perspective. So let's turn to Ben first. And uh, Ben, let me ask you, can you speak more to that process of reaching out to those people? And were they writers? Were they not writers? What were their experiences with your script and so forth? Yeah, these are just friends, friends of my wife, and they're not writers. So none of these people read the script. It really was as simple as just how I, I broke it down on the solo podcast and just saying, hey, what do you think about this? Is this weird? Does this feel off to you? And just getting general vibes and opinions. I wasn't going out seeking writing advice and asking for story arcs or pitches. It was really just friendly advice. 
Yeah, I think you raise a really good point, Alex. It's not really a one-to-one comparison between somebody that you're kind of paying to read a script and give you story advice or a friend who you're, you know, writer who you're asking that and somebody commenting on, you know, the specific depictions of racial or cultural stereotypes or characters or issues in the script that we in our kind of lived experience haven't been a part of, haven't been affected by. You know, I think in those instances, it's actually very important to hear what people have to say about that and how, you know, perhaps for them growing up, seeing the black experience, slavery, etc., depicted on screen uh, in the media that they consumed as a kid and how that affected them and their life and their opinion is really important to, to take into account because for so long, I think, white writers have been writing about the black experience and about slavery and about these things and not necessarily representing it truthfully or authentically and in a way sort of co-opting that experience for entertainment. So I think that we all need to be very uh, careful and respectful about how we continue to do that. And we need to do it in consultation with those people and as a part of our creative team. Um, And so again, it's not the exact same thing as somebody just saying, I think you should move this act break here. This is an entire lived experience that we really know nothing about and need to consider in our work. I absolutely agree. And let me actually share an example here about myself and my own experiences, because we are talking about people's personal experiences here in their own writing. One part of my identity, and I do mean one part, is being Jewish and also being a European Jew. And through that in my life, I have been through some positive experiences, some negative experiences, and plenty of other experiences that kind of lie somewhere in between. Now, does that mean I only write Jewish stories and Jewish characters? Of course not. Uh, But some of those unique experiences, I do channel through in my stories and characters to give them universal emotions. But now, conversely, does that make me the arbiter for Jewish stories? Well, also no, but I'm more equipped to highlight potential issues or problematic angles about Jewish stories in someone else's content that that person who hasn't had those experiences themselves isn't necessarily aware of those issues in the first place. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can still service your own personal experiences to give them a meaningful emotional story. That's the adage of write what you know at the end of the day. And at the same time, you can also understand where your own experiences end and other stories begin and lean into that by reaching out to those people who can speak to those experiences and add value. It's an additive element. That's why we have writer's rooms. That's why TV is essentially a collective creative experience. We want those experiences. We want those diverse stories and diverse voices in your script. And when it comes to your own original pilot, that also means there's no necessarily a writing police that's going to censor you from writing this or that or telling you, uh, like Nick said, that this act break it has to be there or whatever. It's more about learning and educating yourself and showing empathy towards those people and learning more about other people and others' experiences and being respectful to those experiences. He rightfully kind of called me out for saying it's it's not my final call because obviously it is. I'm the one writing it. When I do those recordings, it's really just sort of spitballing, like stream of consciousness. So my verbiage was off there, but I just want my final call to be informed and to be sensitive. So that's all that whole thing was about. I just want to clear that up a little bit. Yeah, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, the point of rewriting history a little bit or erasing something or kind of, you know, washing something away by turning it into something that it actually wasn't uh, is potentially, you know, a worthwhile criticism to consider. Are we doing an injustice to uh, historical accuracy or whatever it may be by kind of, you know, turning this character into something else? Maybe it's better to make her a, a different historical figure who's more of a fictionalized character who kind of incorporates elements of Marie Laveau and other things 
and unless you know it's super important to the script to have them kind of represent those figures or not you know i think if someone were to write a historical drama where they change history about confederate generals or something and make them appear nicer than they were people might have an issue with that yeah, i understand in some ways where rob is coming from about not wanting to kind of you know paint over that stuff but at the same time i think we need to be careful and really just take that input from other people who are actually going to be directly affected by these representations and see if it might be problematic for us to be writing a character like this and focusing on the fact that she was a slave owner and trying to denigrate this historical figure through that when we could be focusing on other areas of the plot right and to that point there are a couple of things here to highlight one in in terms of the historical accuracy, this is something that we discussed in prior mentorship episodes about Ben's script. And again, I don't want to speak on Ben's behalf here, but I will say that this isn't necessarily a script or a story that is very literally historically accurate to the letter. This is something where Ben has worked uh, within specific constraints to tell the story that he wanted to tell with the characters that he wanted to tell. And that brings me to the second point, which is, like Nick said a moment ago, Think about what kind of stories you want to put out there. What kind of stories are meaningful to you and other people that may be watching your show? Is it more meaningful in this day and age to have uh, someone uh, like Marie Laveau who is a slave owner? Or is it more meaningful for Marie Laveau to not be a slave owner or work towards freeing slave? What kind of narrative do you want to put out there? What kind of story and themes and values do you want to explore? Everyone's perspective is different, obviously, and everyone wants to create different content and so forth. But those are the kinds of questions that people will have different opinions on and different perspectives on. So that's a question to ask yourself when you're writing that sort of content and writing those sorts of narratives. Right, exactly. I think this is frequently brought up as sort of an excuse for shows like Game of Thrones, where they have represented a lot of sexual violence against women and whatever, and then used the justification of, well, it's historically accurate. This is what happened in medieval days or whatever that happens to be. And like, that may be the case, but that doesn't mean you have to choose to dramatize it and portray it on the screen and uh, be putting this into people's living rooms. You know, what are you offering? This isn't a documentary. It doesn't matter how historically accurate it is. It's a fantasy show with dragons. So like, why are you choosing to, to fetishize this one particular part of history when it could be more problematic than it actually does any good to represent? Exactly. And to that point, you as the creative are the decision maker. It is Ben's call to say, okay, I'm going to move this piece here and do this piece there. Uh, maybe it isn't uh, historically accurate, but in the grander picture of the existence of the show, maybe it's more important for it to not be historically accurate in that perspective, when that specific point, to speak to those other themes. I was just going to say an interesting example, I think, is Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or even some of his other stuff. He does a lot of this historical revisionism, where it's like, what if the Manson family murders never happened and they actually succeeded instead? So I think that there's definitely some creative license you can take there with exploring kind of a different facet of something and using that narrative dramatic license to deliberately kind of use this as a metaphor or a literary device into a story that perhaps is more relevant or timely or telling uh, to today's world. It's kind of funny that you use those examples because I was about to mention Tarantino as a counterexample. Personally, I wasn't a fan of this revisionist history because it's sort of wanting to do that cathartic, the victim is actually winning at the end of the day, but that's not the real world we live in. And I'm not sure what that brings to the conversation to have, you know, the victims of Manson's murders killing Manson in the movie or something like that, uh, as opposed to understanding the story. Uh, and uh, to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood point, I mean, Sharon Tate isn't really a lead in that movie also. It's more Brad Pitt and Leo's movie. So I'm not a huge fan of the way Tarantino uses those tropes, actually, I will say. But uh, your overall point is accurate of like, I do agree with you in the sense that, as I mentioned before, 
the stories that you choose to put out there are indicative of the values and themes that you want to explore. That's why we are in this business in the first place. That's why we tell the stories that we want to tell, hopefully, is to have a bigger purpose, is to have that cathartic impact, that emotional impact with other people. And so those decisions do matter. And that's in part why we are having this whole conversation as a preface to our discussion about the first draft of Ben's <laughs> I just wanted to add that I think in the first episode I did with you guys, I said that I didn't want to be beholden necessarily to history and and really hamstrung by it because the tone I like is more pulpy and fun and action-y. And obviously there's some vague fantasy elements that could be interpreted either way and uh, I tried to put in the pilot, but my goal wasn't to make necessarily a hard-hitting, historically accurate drama. I mean, there's vampires and magic and it's just not that kind of a story. And I am just telling the story I want to tell, which isn't the deadly accurate historical drama. All right. Well, thank you to Rob for your email uh, that provoked a lot of uh, thoughtful discussion about this point. So if any of you listening have your own thoughts about the process and have your own questions that you want to ask us or Ben about the Pirate King and his writing, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co and uh, maybe we will read it out and discuss it on there. <laughs> All right, let's dig into Ben's first draft for the parking. And before we get into this real quick, Ben, do you want to walk us through that process of going from that outline to that first draft? Yeah, it was pretty interesting for me because like I've said, I'm probably a million times on here now. I've never been that much of an outliner. I've always kind of considered myself more of an organic writer, I guess, than a planner. So having that detailed of an outline really made it, I mean, obviously it was so much easier to have that much of a filled out blueprint going into the actual draft process. So it actually went pretty quickly and I didn't find myself banging my head against walls too much. The only time it became difficult is it was hard to break away from the outline, harder than it was to go from the um, beat sheet to the outline where everything was still nebulous and I felt like pieces moved around easier. It became a little bit harder to do that when I felt like I kind of got attached to that version of the story. So that was one difficulty I had with it. All right. Well, on that note, let's share some of our thoughts about the script. All right. Uh, first off, we just wanted to say a really great job. I think this is a really strong first draft. And I think that, you know, the detailed outline probably really helped a lot with that. You know, I could see that there was a lot that kind of carried over from there that was working and helped you just kind of frame the rest of the stuff around it. But I think by and large, this is a really strong draft. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is a really strong first draft. Even my macro notes that I'm going to mention in a moment are really more scene notes. So after introducing those, we can probably look at the scenes over just the macro stuff. But overall, I really like the humor that you injected in the script. There were a lot of great quips and good character moments. Some of those were obviously in the outline before, but it's really nice to see them executed in the script in a more lively way. The action I thought was really fun and totally, while overall I think you can still push it slightly more edgier than it is right now, overall I really feel like you're achieving what you're trying to do. So really, we want to say good job on the first draft of the parking. Thanks, guys. That's uh, that's great to hear because it's always a little nerve-wracking getting your first notes back. <laughs> yeah. the, the fun stuff's just about to start, I'm sure. Especially nerve-wracking getting your notes back live on air. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the newest part of the process for me. Okay. <laughs> 
All right, so let's uh, chat a little bit about the structure. I think overall, I felt like uh, the structure was a lot tighter for me. I think that your act breaks were stronger from the outline and that uh, there was a lot less that was kind of missing in there. So overall, I think it kind of uh, brought everything together well for me. In particular, a couple of the act breaks that stood out to me as really strong were the act four out, basically, where Jean is stormed the castle and all of his men are dead, the ship's blown up, and then he wakes up in Marie Laveau's kind of sanctum. I think that that's just a really strong, like, all is lost kind of moment. So that stood out. To me, but even just uh, other sections like the other one where he comes out of Jacques Saint Germain's place and sees the guy who's been drained of all his blood, and then Jacques is there kind of peering out of the window and everything. I think it adds a lot of nice intrigue and tension to things. Uh, so overall, those are great. There was one that stood out to me, I think could have been stronger, was probably the act three out where they're about to start breaking into Marie Laveau's compound, and he's sort of trying to get into this underwater tunnel. And then there's just a beat where he's sort of like down on his hands and knees in the mud. There just felt like I could have needed a, something a little bit more there. I don't know what it is, you know somebody spotting him or uh, something. It's just, just something of a stronger punch than just sort of him kind of being on the ground there, I think would have been good to kind of cap that act off. That was the only one that stood out to me as needing a little bit more. Yeah, so I concur on several of those things. I will say for that act out that you mentioned, I have actual pitches once we get to that scene. But overall, I think the structure works. I don't think there's any huge movements to be made. There's emotional stuff to uh, tweak and highlight and, and so forth, and we'll get to it when we get to it. But structurally, overall, I definitely agree with Nick there are a lot of good outs and uh, the momentum of the script is there. The one exception I will say is act one. Again, those are more tweaks. That's why uh, I kind of wanted to go over the macro quote unquote conversation quickly so that we get to really the meat of the script. But overall, I thought that this is actually something that you highlighted in your Patreon update, which I listened to for the record after reading the script and, and putting <laughs> on my notes, uh, because a lot of those thoughts are going to echo a lot of uh, Ben's own thoughts in his update. I felt it was slightly of a lateral move to do the swamp sequence with uh, these other characters. I do like what you're trying to accomplish by uh, introducing Mauricio and his crew much earlier on. I really feel like that is what you should be doing. However, uh, looking at the first act and the first 20 pages or so, there are a few back-to-back -back sequences that felt a bit repetitive. So for example, the teaser sequence is essentially uh, Jean on the boat and getting uh, dumped into the water. And then the next sequence is Jean on another boat getting dumped into the water. And then uh, the following sequence is him getting chased by soldiers and skipping the brother beat for a second. The following sequence is him getting chased by other people and getting out of it by the skin of his teeth. So it felt a bit repetitive there in the way that the rest of the pilot did not feel repetitive. It really felt like you were driving to a certain point and building momentum there. So there are specific tweaks. Again, these are not huge like restructure or anything like that, which obviously as we uh, did the outline before, uh, hopefully there's no restructuring to be made here. Just a specific tweaks there in the first act to really drive for the momentum in, in a way that uh, will bring more emotions to the story. Yeah, the first act was probably the most difficult thing for me to get down because at one point, I think the first act was like 26 pages and I just had to start chopping. So I made a version without the swamp scene, like we had discussed. I made a version without the chase scene. And in the end, I just tried to tighten my language up a little bit, cut out a lot of extra dialogue that just wasn't needed. I think I was leaning towards cutting that initial chase through the streets um, right before he hits the blacksmith shop. But I decided to leave it in for this draft to hear you guys' thoughts. But you guys think maybe that is what could go? Because if, if that's one of the repetitive things, it probably has the least bearing on the story out of everything. I mean, my take on this, and this is kind of jumping the gun because this is more the scene work, but overall, I actually really enjoy that sequence. And I think it is important to have 
It may not necessarily be the same sequence that you have here, but I do feel it is important to have a sequence that shows that Jean is back in a town that he doesn't know anymore. And I feel like that sequence kind of shows that and also shows his superpower of navigating that location uh, easily or slightly easier than other people, but still bumping into obstacles. Now, the second sequence with the pirates and Mauricio's crew, I feel like the point of that sequence isn't to show that uh, Jean is a clever pirate. It's more to show here's uh, an introduction of the foe that Jean is going to be facing and sort of the change of the landscape from Mauricio's end. Uh, and so I feel like there's another different way to look at this. I have actual pictures once we get to those scenes, but uh, especially because the brother is involved in that scene, I feel like you can do something slightly more interesting than just Jean escaping in the same way that he is doing with the soldiers early on. Yeah, I agree with Alex. It does feel like there are a couple of sequences that come one after another that have the same rough kind of shape to them in terms of the action, whether it's a chase sequence or whether it's a jumping off a boat and swimming kind of thing. So I think that, you know, adjusting a few of those to not feel quite so similar, especially so close to each other, uh, could certainly be helpful personally to be a bit of a contrarian. I did like the sequence that you repurposed from the swamp. I think I, I liked the bit where he was going in, trying to break back into this fortress coming up against the pirates. I, I was like the trap beat. In fact, I was kind of hoping that you would leave him, the guy cutting his own leg off in there because I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, I think the end result of that being that he realizes he needs men and he needs to go and find somebody who can back him up so that he can have his revenge, I think for me is important to the story or helpful to the story. So I did disagree slightly with Alex on that, but I think overall I understand the note of wanting to reduce the kind of uh, repetitive feeling or that sort of thing. Cool. And we can get to those once we get to the more scene stuff. Let's talk about characters briefly because personally, I'll Although I do love a lot of the character moments, for example, Jacques and Jean, like I said at the top, I love the humor they injected, the quips and so forth. I was missing a bit of more definition in terms of Louise, Marie, and Agwe. And this is something that you yourself addressed uh, also on the update about leaving it a bit nebulous in terms of what they were discussing and, and all those stories. But I really feel like some specificity in their characters and in their actions is warranted. And this is another thing that we'll get to it once we get to that scene. But killing Agwe in the pilot, in my mind, is something that I, I'm not a huge fan of. I really feel like Agwe is one of very few female characters in this pilot that are defined and have dialogue. And so I would really pitch to preserve Agwe. And if you really want to have that sort of a killing moment, you can do that with any rhetoric, really. Yeah, I, I think uh, Agwe is a man, though. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, there, there you go. See, <laughs> to speak to the lack of definition and yeah. understanding of who's who. Yeah. Uh, well, I would actually pitch that, that Agwe is a woman in that case, uh, because I really feel like it made even more sense uh, if Agwe were a woman. Yeah, that's not a bad idea at all. And that's an easy fix. And yeah, um, I didn't love killing him either. I just felt like it had a bigger impact if it was somebody we had met before. But I don't know if it has such a greater impact that it's worth killing off a potentially interesting character. Yeah, I agree. I think I liked Dog Way and would, would have liked to see more out of them in that scene. So I, I would perhaps just replace it with a random pirate or lackey or that sort of thing. And who knows, maybe Agwe could be injured in the blast. That might be something, but uh, I think I would keep him around or her around if whatever you decide. And just a one more bit on the character's side, I kind of wanted also more a difference and nuances between Marie and Jacques, uh, because as it stands, they're kind of both that uh, self-centered, mysterious person who has that supernatural flair, who kind of likes to monologue uh, to Jean while he's uh, strapped in a chair in a bed. They kind of have the same double sequences, and I do like having that as a parallel, but within the content of those scenes, I kind of wanted more nuances to really separate the characters that they both inhabit. 
That makes sense. And it's just so funny hearing the notes. And I think, damn, he really was just strapped to a chair getting monologued to twice, huh? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm just replaying all this stuff in my head. Uh, no, yeah, that makes sense. Um, just kind of maybe give them a little bit more of uh, distinctive personalities and maybe some mannerisms that'll help them stand apart from one another. All right. Well, in any writer's room, especially drama writer's rooms, what we like to do at the script stage is after we write the script and we talked about the, the bigger picture, we like to go over almost scene by scene or in the more granular detail to really highlight the emotional opportunities and story opportunities that are present throughout the script. And so that's what I would like to do. So if uh, Nick and uh, Anne have their own PDF open, we can uh, dig more into the script itself and uh, enjoy the show for our listeners. I have a note around scene five. And that is the scene where Jean is about to be betrayed by Mauricio, or rather, Jean makes a call in that moment that Mauricio disagrees with. And moments later, Mauricio is going to betray Jean. And I just wanted your thoughts, Ben, on is that scene meant to indicate that Mauricio is rebelling because of Jean's decision in that moment? Or was it Mauricio's plan all along to betray Jean? Yeah, the intention was that Mauricio was always going to betray Jean. And that is why he pushed so hard to get him to pursue that ship into a situation that Jean knew was going to be disadvantageous to him. So that was all part of the master plan for Mauricio. So if that is the case, then I would want slightly it more nuanced or at least explained in such a way in the script that it really indicates that it's Mauricio's plan all along to betray him. And you can maybe downplay a little bit Mauricio's reaction to Jean contradicting Mauricio, essentially, because it's such a sharp turn for, uh, especially narratively speaking, Mauricio's on Jean's side. And in that moment, Jean makes the ultimate call that goes against Mauricio. Mauricio. So there's an opportunity there to really highlight or explain rather in such a way that it's Mauricio's call from the get-go that this was a trap. Yeah, I, I did get a slight sense of that too, where I think it was clearer in the outline to me that what was going on with the whole betrayal and that sort of thing, but there was something just a little bit fuzzier once it got kind of put into the script there and I wasn't entirely sure of the dynamic that was going on there uh, and even, you know, why that final appeal was the one that got through to him. I guess it is the appeal to him that he is his Jean Lafitte. I guess he's appealing to his kind of ego and his prestige and that sort of thing, but perhaps that could have been, um, I don't know. Do you, do you guys feel like that maybe could have been clearer as to like, this was the thing that made him change his mind? I want the dynamic to be clear that Mauricio, ultimately, if that is Ben's intent, that it's Mauricio's goal end game to betray Jean. So that's why he's trying to get Jean to go where he wants to go. So in those scenes where Jean doesn't do what Mauricio is doing, it's not Mauricio being pissed that Jean is not following his tactical advice. It's more, dude, I'm trying to get you to that trap that I prepared for you. Why are you not diverting your ship to be ambushed? It's more that energy that I was missing in those moments. I agree with that, Alex. And also, I thought maybe I could have done more on the betrayal moment too to make all that more clear in retrospect. I, you know, I had a couple friends read it, and that's something I asked them all if they spotted that. And the, the trick was trying to, uh, I tried to limit the dialogue in the teaser just to keep it moving. So, but I think I can just, I could layer stuff in a little bit thicker with Mauricio there. 
Yeah, to be clear, I'm not pitching for more dialogue. In fact, I want less dialogue overall. <laughs> uh, this is a, I mean, we're not even, we haven't even spoken to, to trims here, but uh, I definitely feel like you don't need more dialogue here. It's much more, like you said, it, it's much more visceral if we see the action play out. You can play it ambiguously in regards to Mauricio's reaction. Mauricio can be pissed, right? Like in the scope that Jean is not following Mauricio's orders or advice rather, but you can play it ambiguously where we're not reading it necessarily as, or maybe on the first read, we read it as, huh, I guess uh, Mauricio is pissed that Jean is not taking his advice. But then we realize on the second read or after the trail happens that Mauricio was pissed because he laid this trap before. But I, I feel like this is sort of like uh, Mauricio being pissed that Jean should be uh, arguably downplayed a bit because that's not the goal of the scene. The goal of the scene is to lend the fact that Mauricio gave advice to Jean that led him into a trap. Therefore, Mauricio is the one who laid the trap to Jean, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I'm tracking you. Um, I'm already just started skipping ahead in my brain to try to figure out <laughs> how I'm going to do it. But yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. I also think maybe if Mauricio interacts more with the Spanish mercenaries, I, that can at least clear up his part of the trap more obviously. If like the Spanish mercenary captain points a gun at Jean when he kind of cuts through the fog and, um, Mauricio stops him or something. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but no, I, I feel like you're you're hitting the nail on the head here in terms of that. This was actually dovetailing another point that I was going to make about this betrayal. That it does ask the question of like, why would the fighting even begin and then cease within seconds? If like if the mercenaries were in cahoots with Jean's crew from the start, then there would not be any fighting to begin with, and it'd be just this awkward moment as uh, Jean leads the charge with like no backup. <laughs> uh, but conversely, if the crew kind of decided in the moment to shift and join the mercenaries, then there would still be some fighting going on until the news spread, right? Because the mercenaries would not suddenly telepathically know that the pirates are on their side. So that's the balance that you got to navigate here to really land properly in an efficient way. I'm not saying it's easy by any means, but I'm just saying like obviously within a page or so to land the fact that Mauricio's plan was to betray Jean and he had the mercenaries on his side to begin with. So you could shortcut it where, like you just said, the mercenaries land on the boat and they all go after Jean. I mean, this is obviously the bad version of this, but it's basically shortcutting it in a very clear way. So we understand from the get-go that there was no fight. There was never going to be any fighting to be done. It was all a trap for Jean. Right. I guess the way I envisioned the fight was that Mauricio had like a certain amount of men that were privy to his plan and that would join his side, but the rest of the pirates maybe were loyal to Jean and would fight. But if that muddies the waters too much, I do kind of like the idea of Jean, yeah, prepping for this big battle that never happens. But I also like the idea of having this one big pirate battle at, on the kind of open water because it might be the last time we see something like that for a while in this show. I don't know what Nick's thoughts are on this. I, I definitely agree it's a difficult balance because uh, I, the viewer in me wants to see that battle. I'm, I'm not pitching to remove the battle. And I'm only really pitching around, I would say page five is where the magic happens here, where page five, uh, the current page five, obviously, is where we need to understand very quickly and in an emotional way that this was Mauricio's betrayal from the start. And this was all a trap. And 
obviously logistically you don't want this to drag on where you have the pirates being killed or whatever but i feel there's a way to do it succinctly uh where you do have that bloodshed that happens as you said where pirates that were in jean's crew are the ones being slaughtered and you can kind of see maybe jean looking around again this is like a bad pitch but you can kind of see jean looking around and in slow motion he looks around and he sees all his men being murdered and butchered and meanwhile mauricio is there chilling with the mercenary you know like you can kind of get that sense that mauricio was in bed with the mercenaries and his other men were not and jean wasn't either yeah yeah i see where you're coming from there a lot of it could be done just like when the fighting stops the the fog clears a little bit and we just see some kind of exchange of gold or something between mauricio and the mercenaries or mauricio stops one of them from killing it he, he commands them somehow and that's that'll give us uh you know he gives them some sort of order that they follow, and then we'll instantly know that they're in league with them. Yeah, I agree. All right, so let's move on to scenes nine and essentially the first act here. This is the the first scene and the first sequence is something that we just highlighted moments ago where it kind of feels like two back-to-back sequence of Jean on a ship and then Jean being dumped in the water. It's hard to really figure out a, a solve here. I know, Nick, you you thought you wanted to maybe cut that sequence, or what were your thoughts? Yeah, not so much cutting it. It just sort of felt like, you know, when we were looking at the fact that there were these kind of multiple sequences that were, you know, he's on a boat and he jumps in the water, or he's being led on a chase sort of thing. I thought that this, you know, particular one was important to establish that time has passed, and also you said Alex to set up the other uh, character who ends up kind of betraying him later, but just in terms of its kind of plot, function it really is just sort of him jumping into the water and swimming and there maybe there's a world in which you kind of cut to him entering the city or crawling through the swamps and getting up to the gates or whatever without that scene just you mean keeping most of it intact and and just kind of skipping the dramatic <laughs> dive into the water thing that he does the f you to the captain when he kind of jumps in you mean yeah, I mean, honestly, I like the scene, and I was just sort of like looking for areas where we could cut down on that kind of doubling up of things or making sure that it's performing a clear function that looks and feels different from some of the other scenes, especially the ones that happen in close proximity to them. So it's it's not a hard picture if you need to cut this scene or whatever. It was just sort of looking for areas where we could adjust or condense or find a new way to get to somewhere that makes everything just feel a little different. I agree, because I also really like the sequence, and I'm with Nick here in the sense that I would want the energy to stay but the content uh, should be trimmed or collapsed maybe maybe there's a way to collapse scene nine and and have 10 be that scene where he's on the pedal boat and you kind of get the sense of bernard and jean's relationship there because as much as i love the jean captain dynamic in that moment it's hard to really push for it to stay if it's the same exact beat it's basically the reverse from the teaser which i like i I feel like that's personally why i like the scene is because in the teaser jean had ownership and now he doesn't have ownership and it's kind of the, the mirror version of this but because it happens right after that sequence in the teaser uh it doesn't quite have the same narrative reason to exist there if that makes sense I get you. Yeah, I mean, it was. I kind of wanted to show that he just went. You know, he fell completely down the ladder. But, but yeah, maybe it, it's just too soon to happen. I could cut so much of that back and forth with the captain because it's really just there for. I mean, to set up John a little bit, but if it it could probably get shortened down to like one or two lines. I could just cut to him off the boat. But yeah, and I know. I get what you're saying. They could definitely use some trimming. I think a lot of the first act can. I feel it's a full measure thing, not a half measure thing, in the sense that if you're going to basically remove a lot of the captain stuff, in that case, I would pitch to remove all of it and just have scene 10 feature Bernard. And we get in scene 10 a relatively 
quick element of they arrive at the New Orleans dock and we get a sense that Bernard and Jean had a friendship and whatever. And so Jean says goodbye to Bernard and and we get within less than a page, really, we get the sense of their brotherhood and they've been through stuff over the years. We get the contrast, even visually, we get the contrast of Jean in the teaser from now because he has the beard and everything. Um, so that's really the main point on the story level that you want to get at is introducing Bernard so that Bernard betrays Jean later on. If you're going to cut and trim the captain stuff, I would really pitch for the whole sequence to remove and that way you essentially win uh, two pages of a script. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think if it could just be a, yeah, as simple as, as maybe he lives out in the bayou and, and he's one contact Jean has left, so he goes there and hitches a ride. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just kind of condense those two scenes into one shorter scene and scene 10. All right, excellent. I'm moving to scene 11, page 10. I had a quick mention about the steam train because we, I believe, are in the late 1700s, even though the steam train wasn't a thing until the 1850s or basically 100 years later. So I do like the idea of a big tech revolution happening while he was gone, but the steam train is such a big thing in that moment that you're not really using after that. Like, it'd be one thing if it was, you know, like Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's train, so to speak, where you set that up and you paid off later. But I had a slight bump on this. I don't know if, Nick, you had the same bump. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the historical thing. I just sort of assumed that you'd done your research and that's <laughs> when trains had started to come about. So I, I had not bumped on that, but mainly just sort of out of my own ignorance. I hate to be this guy, but it actually is fairly historically accurate. Um, the script takes place. Uh, Jean's disappearance was in 1822, I believe. So if we're saying a, co- a few years have gone by, I'm fudging the numbers a little bit because the first steam train appeared in New Orleans in like 1834. So okay. it is within a couple years. And it, it, you know, he would have been absent from New Orleans for basically the explosion of the Industrial Revolution. So he's coming back to a very different city. And that timeline, it's fudged by maybe 10 years, but not 100. I think I got confused where I thought the thing took place in the late 1700s as opposed to the early 1800s. So yeah, because I, I think I said like 1850 or whatever. Yeah. So, so I, I, think- I definitely agree in that case, it makes more sense. But maybe it's just me uh, being a, <laughs> a struggle a nerd in very specific areas. <laughs> I, think, I think on my very first pitch to you guys, like the, the log line, it said 1700s before we discovered that it was going to be about John. Um, so I think that may be stuck in your head. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, we can move on from that. <laughs> so this is, again, like a, a, on the smaller side, but in the sequence on scene 12, around page 11, I think you can drive that moment of Jean escaping the soldiers in the sense that this is the first moment we're really seeing Jean do what he does best and either failing or succeeding. And the pros should really highlight Jean's action over the soldiers. So you can kind of collapse everything. And so, for example, this is just a brief example of this in the prose where you can just say a version of Jean runs right into a freshly painted brick wall. You know, no, this shouldn't be here. Soldiers are out of sight, but probably not for long. Jean quickly looks around to find an exit. There's nowhere to go unless Jean finds a balcony over his head with precarious iron railing. He jumps, reaches, but falls pathetically short. Stop now. The soldiers are about to reach him. Thinking quickly, Jean removes his cloak, etc., etc. I don't know if that the shape uh, made sense uh, on the audio version of this, but basically I'm swapping around. I'm sort of collapsing it where it's all through Jean's perspective and really cutting out some of the soldier dialogue that we don't really need. And it's much more about Jean looking around and trying to find an exit in an urgent way. 
That makes sense. Don't worry, Alex. It worked for me because I'm reading along, so I get what you're putting down. Uh, but yeah, no, I like that. Just tighten it up a little bit. Sure. Yeah, like having a more dynamic engine there where you, we really see Jean thinking on his feet to really emphasize that moment that already exists there. It's not adding anything new. It's more about rephrasing and, and highlighting it. Right, Thanks. doubling down on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right, my next thought is on scene 14, the reunion between Jean and his brother. And this is a scene where I felt like I wanted more emotions from both ends, especially Jean casually saying, Pierre, we need to talk in that moment, even though he's been through hell and back for years without having ever seen his brother. And on top of that, he's presumed dead. So I wanted at least a punchier opener between the two than a quip. As much as I like the quip, I wanted slightly more of an emotion between two brothers in that moment in scene 14. Yeah, I could could rework that a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think I felt that there was something a little bit missing there in terms of, you know, maybe the emotion was kind of called out, but not really seen or felt as much. And I'm curious about their relationship and how we can kind of hint at that and maybe even put some more of the conflict that they've had with each other in there. You know, the the bad version of it is the kind of thing where like he goes, he sees his brother and he expects a hug and he gets punched in the face, you know, like that sort of thing where it's like, what you know, what is the complexity of their relationship? Is it a love-hate relationship? Are they on great terms? What are the things that are going on said between them? All of that kind of thing. I think when help lend a little bit more depth to the brother character as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of working out their dynamic for myself, which probably isn't the greatest thing to say after you finish the first draft. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what second drafts are for, right? So yeah, no, uh, I agree with you. Next point is very valid. In fact, it speaks to the next scene that I was going to mention, scene 15, where this is a slight tangent, but it's going to circle back to the Pierre-Jean relationship in a second, where I wanted you to hide the ball more expositionally on the fake legacy stories about Jean. And by that, I mean, I want this to be filtered out throughout the episode as it progresses. Maybe Pierre seeds that there are stories and we get that sense, that brotherhood dynamic that Nick speaks about uh, in relationship to the stories that Pierre has heard about Jean before Jean came back. And the focus is much more on the emotion of being back uh, with his brother after all these years, their brotherhood or the lack of brotherhood, if there's a, like they like mentioned, uh, some uh, some tension there uh, and some disgust regarding Mauricio from Jean to establish the quest of the episode. But Jean, uh, let's remind ourselves emotionally there, Jean is already coming in hot. He's already there to kill Mauricio, basically. He doesn't need even more reasons to kill him by learning about the stories that Mauricio spread about him, at least not in that point, since that's already his purpose. So I feel like in that moment, you can have that dynamic flipped a bit where Jean is the one coming in hot. He's the one here for revenge against Mauricio. We get through that, the brotherhood part, maybe this tension, maybe Pierre is not really as open to Jean as he once used to be, uh, in part because of Mauricio's fake stories. We don't know, obviously, that Mauricio is the one spreading the stories, but Pierre wants to maybe reconnect. You know, the past is the past, the things that you already have here. You're home now, Jean. Forget the stories that are being told about you. Forget all that. I have you as my brother right here, right now let's reconnect let's step down let's uh, let's chill let's grab a beer but jean is the one doubling down on wanting mauricio dead asap right like in this episode in episode one i want mauricio dead okay so uh, get me to mauricio so you end in the same place emotionally at least for jean where you have that scene but it's less about pierre revealing uh, exposition about mauricio spreading the stories which we would get to later on there's plenty of opportunities later on where we get that moment in a more impactful emotional way and this is much more about pierre trying to reconnect 
connect with his brother, or you can play the tension part that Nick pitched also. But again, this is the opportunity you have there where you can play that tension. Yeah, I, I like the idea of Pierre trying to pump the brakes and have a brotherly moment. And then it, because it also kind of shows the how single minded and unhinged a little bit Jean has become, which then plays into the um, Luis and Pierre thing, why he doesn't want to open up about their relationship to Jean. Yeah, and I think that was something we spoke about early on, and I maybe I missed the mark a little bit there. So I think, yeah, reworking that, yeah, I, I, I see that. And so on that, at the end of that scene, we have a bit of a confusing message because Pierre says, rest tonight, but there's something you need to see. So there's a bit of a confusing sort of urgency there where Jean is coming in to kill Mauricio, basically. Um, and Pierre is like, rest tonight, but there's something really important I want, I want you to see at some point in time. Which begs the question, why not now? What, like, if this is important, why not now? So I felt like you could sort of end that scene differently where you could potentially, if Pierre is the one that wants to show Jean stuff, then... That should lead directly into the next scene where Jean is with Pierre, uh, scene uh, 18, not 17. Scene 18 should be the next one, as opposed to Pierre just saying, rest tonight, which I feel like should be the energy, especially if it's like a brother thing. He would not be the one volunteering information that is going to get Jean killed or Jean out of his life again. He would do everything in his power to keep Jean home and Jean safe, et cetera, et cetera. So just something to keep in mind. You're suggesting that Jean should be the one that's going to go to Barataria regardless, and Pierre is just saying, please rest before you do that, or just cut the rest thing and just say, there's something you need to see and just cut straight to it's the next day they're there. Well, I mean, in terms of the next date, logistically, I honestly wasn't really paying attention to the days and nights because they all kind of blended together for me. But I would say that you can play it either way. Honestly, I would say what feels true to the character is more Pierre not necessarily volunteering the information. And maybe Jean's the one uh, because, again, I'm not familiar with the logistics of the world. Right. So I I don't know if Barataria is a place that Jean would organically visit. So if it is a place that John would organically visit to check on his stuff, he would be the one be like, all right, like, let's go to Barataria first thing in the morning, or let's do this right now. And Pierre's like, just, you know, just rest tonight, like you're home. And then John would be the one pushing to go to Barataria. Maybe he's the one that went there the next in the scene 18 or whatever. Maybe he's the one that went there without his brother knowing. And then Pierre being a good brother followed him. And that way we can show a bit more of that dynamic of like, Pierre, what are you doing here? Why are you not back home? And he's like, well, I was worried about you. Like, you're not familiar that you're not aware now that Mauricio is the one in charge of Bar- whatever. You can get that exposition there. And you get a sense that Pierre is, uh, you know, has a relationship with Jean that's very particular. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of him following him. Logistically, it's a little weird because Barataria is it's quite a trip from New Orleans. It's out in the bay. Uh, like in the Gulf of Mexico almost. And I, I get what you're saying. No, I, I, what I'm pitching again is not literally like these are the things. It's more like emotionally the the dynamic that I want to see play out as opposed to, again, I don't know the logistics of <laughs> what is happening in terms of some of those elements. I don't know where Baratari Island is. For example, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got you. I got you. Uh, my next thought is on scene 17 when Mauricio is brought in. So I'm a bit torn about that whole scene because on one hand, I do like that we are seeing Mauricio and we're introduced seeing Mauricio there. On the other hand, I feel like Mauricio being introduced at, at the end of Act 1, the sequence we already have at the end of Act 1, feels organically like the better place for Mauricio to be introduced there. 
emotionally uh, because this is the moment especially considering off of the brother conversation and what we just talked about it feels like jean it's it sort of this is jean's journey at this point we need to follow jean getting to know what the pieces are so if he is seeing mauricio and remy in that point like the bad version is if that scene needs to happen scene 17 then i would want basically jean with the binoculars uh, watching that scene happen from afar or something like that where uh, jean is the one leading us to that scene as opposed to cutting away to mauricio people that we sort of know but we don't really know uh, as much as we know jean and not paying it off immediately as opposed to jean going to barataria he is confronted by mauricio's men and that's how we learn that this is Mauricio's island now. This is Mauricio's territory. He's the captain now. That's how we learn that. And we build tension and, and mystique a bit about Mauricio. And we get the rest of the act one. And act one ends the same way you have it here, where Mauricio stands near the base of the red rag uh, tree, blah, 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 blah. And that's when Mauricio realizes, a well, first of all, we get to see that this is Mauricio's back, in, back here now. He's the captain now. And B, Mauricio has an inkling of an idea that Jean is back in town. So that's maybe slightly of a more meaningful, impactful way to reintroduce Mauricio in the action. Yeah, I agree there. I think it would have been nice to... It feels weird that he's sort of absent for the entire scene, given how central he is to his kind of quest and everything. So it might be nice if we find a way to kind of hint at him a little bit earlier. And that kind of ties into something a little bit later that I felt still wasn't working very effectively for me, which is that scene between Jacques and Mauricio later on, where Mauricio kind of storms in and is like, why didn't you tell me he was back? And again, like I think I had a similar note on it last time. It still doesn't feel like we're getting much out of that scene. There's more opportunity there for something. Or, you know, in this case, perhaps if, if Mauricio was spotted um, by Jean even earlier, then you don't even need that scene anymore. Yeah, uh, I think you guys made some good points. The intention of the scene was just to set, to kind of give Mauricio more involvement in the overall plot to kidnap Marie. But yeah, it doesn't feel necessary. It wouldn't kill me to take it out. So, I mean, as long as I still have that scene, when he ends up seeing Jean's handiwork at the base of the tree, that probably covers it. At least then we know he's a player. We know he's on the island. We know that he's in control of these men. Exactly. And you can also play, you can hide the ball a little bit, or if you remove, you know, scene 17, 16, and you really highlight that sequence of, it's also, it feels a bit different from the soldier sequence, which solves a lot of the problems that we talked about before, where it's basically Jean arriving with his brother, confronted by Mauricio's men. Maybe he doesn't quite know yet that it's Mauricio's men, but he realizes and learns through the action, obviously, that this isn't his island anymore. This is someone else's island. And the question becomes, whose island is it or something like that. Maybe uh, if you want to hide the ball there and then we get obviously the answer or maybe he has an idea. I'm talking about the audience here. We don't necessarily know who owns the island at this point. And that's revealed at the end of Act 1. So we get sort of the confluence of things where we reintroduce Mauricio. We learn that Mauricio is the head of the island now. We see Mauricio learning that Jean's back and all those different elements uh, at play. Yeah, and I think Jean can learn a lot of the, the Mauricio background just through the actions of those pirates that are getting him. I had a, a bit of a draft earlier where they had some debate as to whether they were going to remain loyal to Jean. So maybe that can kind of tie back into this a little bit more now that I'll have some space cleared up. And I would also say I need more clarification about who Morgan, Foster, and Ramsey are. Until you just said it just now, I wasn't even clear that they were, I guess, Jean's men in such a way. Like it felt more like they were Mauricio's men or they switched sides or that nuances of their torn loyalties is something I want, if it exists in the story, I want a lot more of to really be clear. And that would actually differentiate the whole sequence a lot from the soldier thing where you can play that whole sequence any way you want that isn't a repetitive beat from the soldier sequence 
where, you know, he doesn't need to be bolting despite guns aimed at him. You can have a little brotherhood moment where, I mean, the bad version is Pierre and Jean at gunpoint exchange words like the bad version of, remember the time in Bucharest where we ate uh, ice cream or whatever? And then that's code word for in 10 seconds, let's run in opposite directions so that these people are confused or I don't know, like this is just a bad example, but something to really show that bond between Jean-Pierre and introducing a new type of action sequence that we haven't seen before, as opposed to just Jean running pursued by the pirates. Yeah. So you mean like making it more, instead of Jean just going off the top of his head, making it more of a planned sequence between him and Pierre. Yeah. And you can still end the same way with the bear trap and all those different, you can end any way you want, but I want more ownership from Jean and Pierre. And that way it involves, it's a fun moment between the two brothers that we haven't seen so far, as opposed to just Jean running from people, which we've already seen. So, and that way you can establish a lot of things. We can also establish through that sequence, the torn loyalties, right? Like that, like the moment where Jean and and uh, Pierre decide to do X gambit to escape the pirates. By that point, we understand, hopefully through the dialogue and the action, that the pirates, you know, were old uh, pirates from Jean's crew or whatever thing you want to do with them. But at least we get a sense of all the exposition that we talked about in terms of their dynamic. I mean, pretty much every pirate that works for Mauricio, except for maybe the younger guys, used to be at least associates of Jean's, because he was like the only game in town. Now it's Mauricio and Laveau and Saint Germain. So I think I definitely need to hit that harder that Mauricio has basically co-opted Jean's whole operation. So, but you know, these guys are still pirates at the end of the day. So if they know that there's a huge price on or would be a huge price on Jean's head, what's the loyalty got to do with it at that point for them? Literally, you could use that dialogue within that their exchange. I, I agree with you in the sense that I wanted a lot more clarity of what you were just describing now in terms of that Jean was the one who controlled all the pirates. And as soon as Mauricio removed that piece from the game, Mauricio is the one who controlled all those people. And now we're at a place where Jean is confronted with that reality that everything he built his entire life for is gone. And not only is it gone, but it's going to the one person who took that away from him. You know, like, so all those emotions need to be at play throughout. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, that's uh, I got to work that back in there for sure. Yeah, I agree 100%. So next uh, thought, and this is maybe a slightly larger thought, is around scene 20. This is something that we talked about in our last episode, but I'm really pitching for the injury to not happen in act one, but to really happen in scene 30, where Jean is essentially pursuing Mauricio, as opposed to getting the injury in scene 20, which in my mind is still a lateral move where uh, you're getting random people injuring Jean as opposed to within the story, he gets actively injured from pursuing Mauricio in a pivotal set piece, especially because it's not even brought up until after scene 30. It doesn't really play a part besides obviously like uh, the brother saying, oh, you're hurt. But actively in the story, uh, him being injured doesn't change anything if you move it to scene 30. However, if you move it to scene 30, it changes a lot of things emotionally. So I'm really pitching that Jean gets injured in scene 30 as opposed to scene 20, which didn't really, he can get like a, you know, like a flesh wound or whatever. But I'm saying like the injury that we talk about, that necrotic injury that Marie heals needs to be tied in my mind to Marie so directly in that pivotal set piece in scene 30. Yeah, I I think it would certainly be great if Mauricio could be the one who actually inflicts that wound upon him. I think it'd be a much stronger kind of connection there. Yes. So Mauricio being involved in the fight in scene 30, in the hallway fight at Jacques' place? 
Or are you guys just mean still just the continued pursuit of them? I think Nick and I are pitching slightly different versions where uh, essentially what all I want is that Jean gets injured directly from his pursuit in that pivotal sequence. Nick, I believe, is pitching that within that sequence, essentially Mauricio is the one injuring Jean, which I agree is emotionally stronger. Mauricio should be the one injuring Jean. I just don't know logistically if that works with, because uh, I don't know, again, like this is something we talked about, about like the scene that Nick mentioned where Mauricio learns about Jean's existence and so forth. So I don't know how that domino falls with the other dominoes, but I definitely concur with the emotion that whether it's Mauricio literally injuring Jean or if it's Mauricio metaphorically injuring Jean through Jean's pursuit of him, uh, that should be what happens. Yeah, I just wanted to pitch it as an option. It, it doesn't have to be literally Mauricio doing it, but if there's a way to make that work, I think that you know the structure that's already in place at the end about him coming and finding out secondhand and having a conversation, two people having a conversation about someone off screen, I think is not as uh, impactful as if we do get Mauricio and perhaps even more directly involved in things. I think it would be great if Mauricio could do it, but I am struggling with the logistics of it because I just can't see a world in which Mauricio gets the upper hand on John and then lets him walk away. Because I think at the end of that scene, he's knocked out or I forget if he faints from the infection. I think he gets knocked out in that one. They'd have to bring in 10 more guards to stop Mauricio from finishing the job, you know? Um, But I, I like that idea better. I tried to do the whole, the get him, have him injured in the pursuit of Mauricio by restructuring the swamp thing to that whole scene to have it take place at Barataria. So I was trying to get that point across that it was still sort of the pursuit of Mauricio, but I, you're right, Alex, that it makes more sense if it is a literal direct pursuit, uh, which it is in that, that later scene at Jacques mansion. Yeah. Cause at this point it's still nebulous and right. it has less of an emotional impact. If it's actually him, like here's my goal, I'm going to get to the goal and I get injured. And that injury directly has an impact throughout the rest of the script. And that's uh, emotionally very important. Whereas as it stands, if you have it early, also it introduces a lot of logistical questions of why is the wound festering at this point in time and not earlier and blah, blah, blah. So the kind of questions you don't want people to ask basically. The, the one other thing I, I, I kept coming back to the swamp thing, even though I know we, we talked about cutting it in the last episode because i like the idea that the dirtiness of the swamp that causes the infection i like the visual of him like really scooping you know some nasty muck out of his shoulder and seeing it like instantly we we get like just the visual language of the red inflamed wound like we know this is is bad and that would maybe be lacking if it takes place in a more sterile environment but i mean infections happened and they couldn't control it very well back then so that's just something i was kind of debating on my own there yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to happen in the swamp. Regardless of how clean the location is, we're still in the 1800s. Right. So <laughs> I would still think, okay, it's natural that the wound infects, right? Like, it's not a question where like, oh, this is weird that yeah, <laughs> the wound no. infects. I think it's pre-germ theory. So yeah, they, they'd they have no idea what's going on. They're like, yeah, it's some kind of magic. He's got demons in his blood or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I hear you. And just briefly to reiterate, since we're uh, moving now to scene 22, uh, if this is our introduction for Mauricio, uh, this is a pivotal moment at that point, because this is the moment where we have Mauricio's oh crap moment, where he realizes that Jean Lafitte is back, even though it may not be verbalized, but maybe the way uh, like you have it a bit where like the way Jean has dealt with those pirates is a trademark way that only Lafitte would do it as. And so that's how Mauricio starts to be suspicious. So Jean's actions are what triggers Mauricio. Um, not necessarily the location of the body, but really something that he did in that fight sequence. The, what I was going for was that it was more the fact that none of the other pirates knew about the traps 
And maybe that is maybe like a, a Jean calling card from back in the day that he used to set up these traps that nobody else knew about, have hidden caches all around. But I could double down on that for sure. On that note, the cache that is discovered on page 18, does that play a part later in the episode? The, the cache where he finds the uh, dagger and the pistol. Besides using it in that immediate instance in the fight, I, he, yeah, no, he, 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 uses, he basically executes the dude caught in the oh, yeah. trap. Sorry, you, okay, okay. Well, I mean, does he use both the, the pistol and the dagger or just the dagger? He doesn't use the dagger in that scene. He uses the pistol to kill the guy in the bear trap. And then the dagger, I kind of layer in. I always like the idea of like signature weapons in movies and TV shows. So I kind of like the idea that he has this like ivory grip, like nice dagger that will carry through the whole thing. I mean, it's the dagger he carries and threatens Marie with. And I mentioned it a few times, but it doesn't have like a massive payoff. I just kind of like the idea that it's like something immediately recognizable as like, oh, that's Jean's. So I like that idea a lot, and I would pitch to remove the pistol in that case, have him go to the cache, get his signature weapon, kill the soldiers or the pirates or whoever with that signature weapon, and that's how Marisa realizes, oh wait, this isn't a gunshot wound, this is a an ivory dagger wound or whatever, <laughs> and that's how he realizes that this is Jean's signature weapon. You get all that in that moment. It may not be verbalized, but you get all that if clearly he goes to that place to get the signature weapon, and that's how he killed those people. Yeah, I like that. It certainly is no uh, big deal taking out the pistol. And yeah, it'll kind of reinforce the idea that, uh, that that weapon is special or at least special to Jean. Yeah, I like that idea a lot, too. It's funny, Ben, conversations, you know, you worked at a, a prop warehouse. They have a lot of <laughs> weapons that are built in, and linked out to, to places. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. That, and even in um, strange California, you know, you have the, the special gun and all that kind of thing. So I think that's a fun little yeah. calling card of your, uh, <laughs> your work is everybody has a signature weapon. <laughs> Yeah, that's like the eight-year-old in me that comes out when I'm writing. I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I had this cool gun or this cool sword? <laughs> but yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, it does make working in a prop house pretty fun. <laughs> love the signature weapons. So my next thoughts are on page 24, scene 26, the scene between Jean and Louise, especially because it's the first scene where Jean and Louise are reignited. Um, I really like the energy that Louise has here where she doesn't care that Jean's back, especially because of, of the negative stories that she heard about him. And the energy is there. But I kind of wanted a different maybe emotion or take from Jean. He feels a bit, I would say, condescending to put it lightly towards Louise, which I don't feel is the way you want Jean to be necessarily. So for example, when Louise says, I freed my father's slaves, Jean dismissively says, uh, how progressive. <laughs> It's not really the kind of thing that I feel you want your hero to say, like dismissing how progressive someone is for freeing their slave. Right. I, I mean, I like the sort of the quip, but I <laughs> that didn't really make sense in that moment. Um, Especially if you're asking someone for a favor. So I, I get where you're coming from. And overall, I feel like there's a way to massage some of the things he says where I don't think Jean, this is on page 25, but I don't think Jean would lead with, I want to kill the first mate who betrayed me to Louise of all people because they just reunited after all this time. Maybe he would highlight more of his legacy or something that she helped him build or something like that, where it's an emotional connection that they have together as opposed to the name drop moment of this is the guy that betrayed me or whatever. And that way you avoid a lot, I feel like a lot of uh, questions about so like what does louise know about Mauricio and etc etc jean's emotion should i feel it be much more uh, connected to louise you can still see it in the revenge part and that's the drive 
and the hot part of his motives for being there. But with his reconnection with Louise, emotionally, you want to play that tension of Jean being back and basically saying, oh, I love you, Louise. I want you back. It's been so long. And Louise is like, who are you, dude? I don't want to be around you. Yeah. And and I think if he focuses more on his legacy than just the pure revenge, that's another way, like we talked about, trying to layer the idea that his ego is his driving force back into it rather than just cold-bloodedness. So yeah, I I like that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree on that as well. I think that that's something we discussed last time as well is just sort of fleshing out their kind of their history and even, you know, delving into the whole theme of who he thought that he was to her and what she thought about him and their relationship kind of mirroring his larger reputation with the world and with everybody else. Absolutely. And this is the place, especially if you hide the ball in the brother scene earlier, this is the moment or the first step towards realizing, or second step, I guess, towards realizing that there's fake news being spread about Jean. And again, we don't necessarily need to know it's Mauricio behind it, but we get the sense that this tension. And in the first read, we believe perhaps that maybe, you know, it's just because he's been gone or whatever, but we can still get a sense that Louise is not in regards to Jean the same as she was before. And I would also say if you're sort of leaning into that emotion and tension between the two, I would want Jean to be much more emotionally reactive towards the different truth bombs that Louise is throwing at him. So, for example, Louise is like, you don't own me, Jean, you never did. That's a huge statement to make. Uh, And so I feel like Jean should definitely react to this in an emotional way, especially because, again, they haven't seen each other in years. And so those are the moments where you can really highlight, hopefully, you know, subtly, obviously, but you can highlight that the reason why Louise is so antagonistic towards Jean is because of the story she heard about him. Yeah, but playing up Jean's reactions maybe a little bit more too there. Yeah, no, uh, I like that. Great. So moving on to the boss sequence. First, a little, this is a tiny note or just a a thing on page 28. It would be nice if Jean's fake name had some sort of resonance to something we've seen earlier. Again, this is a tiny thing, but uh, him just uh, creating a name on the spot you know, that's part of why a lot in a lot of movies and shows that the trope is the person looks around and finds a name, you know, not that, but a version of that where you have something that is seated before. Maybe he uh, takes Bernard's name and it's kind of awkward when uh, Bernard is a kid, when at this, at this point, Jack obviously knows that Jean isn't Bernard because he kidnapped Bernard. It's funny that you said Bernard, because as soon as you started uh, on this note, that was the first thing that came to my mind, too, because that would be funny. He walks in, he's Mr. You know, Bernard, whatever, meet Mr. Bernard, whatever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, my next thought is the interaction between Mauricio and Jack on page 30, especially after Mauricio hits the waiter or Remy or whoever it is, the lackey of Jacques. I feel like in that moment where Jacques and Mauricio are slightly confronting each other, Jacques should take more ownership of the situation in his own way and not only emphasizing the two men's dynamic, but really basically throwing shade at Mauricio to really get a sense of their differences. So much less, I'll see to it, Mauricio, which is what he says now, but more a disdain, like something like, oh, well, if this were a pirate ship with uh, savages on board, then you'd be more than welcome to lower yourself by punching down. But this is a ball in my state, so I don't want that to happen. Again, this is just a simplified version of this, but emotionally something where he throw shade at the way Mauricio is savagely beating his lackey and now asking, because Mauricio's like, the boy needs to be taught some manners. And that's not necessarily Mauricio's call. That's Jacques' call, because this is his place. Yeah, I, I like the idea of playing up more of an antagonistic relationship between the two of them. Yeah, that would heighten the tension a little bit anytime going forward we see those two together. So uh, I like that. 
All right, and that leads us to the next scene, which is something that you yourself highlighted in uh, your update. You introduced a new scene between Marie and Louise in scene 29 on page 30. That's a brand new scene that introduces us to Marie Laveau. And I had a couple of thoughts on this. Overall, I'm not sure if you want to break momentum of that set piece with the ball and Jean chasing Mauricio and so forth, unless you're establishing something that will pay off within that sequence or is a directly relevant B-plot that we have been following. Whereas in this case, it's a new introduction to a new character. It's a lot of new information, which cuts away from the action. But with all that said, so th- my first place would basically be removing uh, that scene and uh, and conserving Marie's reveal to later. But the alt to this, I would also pitch, perhaps if you want to conserve the same energy, you could have an intercut where Marie goes to someone who we know now is Marie Laveau, but at this point, we don't know. Uh, we just think it's a tower reader. She goes to this tarot reader, and we have a a little bit of an intercut where the tarot read intercuts with Jean chasing down Mauricio on the page 32. We have a lot of action there, which I like. And you could maybe have Marie Laveau, uh, the tarot reader, giving a tarot read that's directly relevant to what is happening on screen and maybe give us a better sense emotionally and thematically of the relationship with Louise or what is happening with Mauricio or whatever take you want to go with this. So those are kind of my thoughts on this whole scene. Yeah, I really love that pitch. I thought, you know, I liked the tarot scene, but it didn't feel like there was really enough going on there. But I think that's a really fun way to play with that device of intercutting and, you know, whatever you're reading from the tarot is what's playing out on screen or juxtaposing with that. So I think that'd be really fun if you agree, Ben. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's a great pitch. Yeah, that's clever. I think that that would be fun to write too. Great. And just to also be clear, I would pitch in that case to keep Marie's identity anonymous until we realize later on you know, in the prose, the bad version is, you know, like uh, Jean is faced with Marie Laveau, the tarot reader from scene 29, you know, like just to be clear that it is the same person. But we don't need to be introduced to who Marie Laveau is as opposed to what Marie Laveau stands for almost in that sequence. Yeah. And I think that still plays with the uh, ambiguity of her powers. If she's kind of calling the fight as it's happening. So yeah, it it gives her a little bit more of an air of mystery. Uh, Yeah, I like it. Well, uh, my next tiny note is on page 33 at the point where Jean gets uh, the saber hilt uh, on his face and uh, Jean is KO'd. Uh, I would maybe use a different phrase than the lights go out because I, initially I thought the lights went out and I was like, wait, is electricity a thing in the 1800s or whatever? Uh, but no, you don't mean literally the lights go out. You mean figuratively, you know, cut to black or smash to black. So I feel there's a slightly a different way of phrasing it. I'm a big martial arts fan. So that that's a phrase that gets thrown around pretty commonly, but I, I see now that maybe it's not as common in every circle. <laughs> <laughs> this leads me to page 35, the iconic scene between Jean and Jacques. And so throughout this episode, I've been mentioning how up until this point, we should be seeding, not expositing, but seeding the fact that there are stories spread about Jean. And we know by this point that Jean's legacy has been compromised. Well, this is the scene where I feel like Mauricio being the one to have spread lies about Jean should be revealed. And really, Jean, first of all, would not tip his hand that he's ready to be Jacques Lackey. On the contrary, he would be holding his cards close. And Jacques would be the one leading him to water by revealing Mauricio is the one spreading the lies, uh, which 
uh, again, just to reiterate, Jean would not know by that point. So it would be played on multiple levels where Jacques wouldn't be the one downloading some information to Jean. He would kind of drip feed him exactly what he knows Jean wants to hear or doesn't know so that Jean does his bidding. And so that way you kind of get the exposition download. You can get later on on scene 36, page 42 with the, the Pierre scene with the brother. Again, more of the exposition there. But overall here, it's really more about, you know, Jacques drop feeding information to Jean that impacts him emotionally so that Jean does Jack's bidding. Yeah, that makes sense. And this is the best scene. You know, if I go back and make the changes to the story stuff, this is the natural ending point for it. And yeah, it gives Jacques some kind of power over Jean. So yeah, I like that. I would also say the way you could figure out the order of operation, it would be flipped a little bit where Jacques would probably frame the voodoo queen thing to uh, Jean getting his men in the ship, which intrigues Jean. But the Jean getting a ship isn't really what he's immediately after. What he's immediately after is Mauricio, which he doesn't verbalize, right? Like this is internal information, but Jacques knows this. So Jacques knows and can sense that what Jean is here for is his legacy and revenge. So, and Mauricio, you know, that's when he would reveal the information about Mauricio and so forth to really get Jean on board. Yeah. And that kind of gives Jacques more of that Machiavellian schemer background, the master manipulator that I like. So yeah, I, I like that. So tiny little thing on page 38, the transition between scene 33 and 34, when Jean is released from captivity. I wanted a slightly on the top of scene 34, maybe end of scene 33, a more dynamic way for Jean to be released from captivity in such a way that he, quote unquote, accidentally bumps into Bernard, but it's actually left ambiguous for the audience on whether Jacques did this on purpose, especially because as of now, you have the end of Act 2, which is really strong with Jacques standing behind his window, drinking blood, aka wine. But that moment is sort of framed in such a way that we don't really know if uh, Jacques released Jean in such a way that he would bump into Bernard and kind of see if he would murder Bernard in that moment. So play it, it's almost like a this is another Jacques scheme, like he's orchestrating this just to gauge a reaction, you mean? This would be, again, on the, this is subtle talk. This isn't like, I just want it at the top of scene 34, you can play it where, kind of see Jean released in such a way where... Sorry, almost like they're released into the same alleyway almost at the same time kind of thing? Exactly. Okay. The, I mean, yeah, this would be, again, like the very stereotypical thing, but basically, yes, it's like, oh, what? Same alleyway? What? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah, that makes sense. I like that too, yeah, because then... It makes more sense that Jacques would then be watching so eagerly. Exactly. If he, he kind of knows, if he set that ball in, into motion. Well, now let's move on to Act 3, the scene between Louise and Pierre. I'm not sure if that relationship is really understood by me at this point emotionally. I'm not quite understanding why Louise is with Pierre, who is, you know, the shopkeeper in the back alley as opposed to anybody else. With uh, Jean, I could maybe get it in the sense of, you know, it's like the mystique of the pirate and adventure and blah, blah, blah. But with Pierre, it feels like he's out of his league, essentially. This is a completely different class. So I'm just trying to get more of an understanding of their relationship, which you could get at the top of scene 36. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting too if the reasons that she likes his brother are the same reasons why her relationship with Jean didn't work out. You know, how is his brother different from him? And, you know, what are the, the flaws versus the strengths and that sort of thing? How are the opposites in that way? And I think that it'd be interesting if that kind of helped motivate her choice to, to be with this man instead. Yeah, that makes sense. Because in a lot of ways, Pierre and Jean, at least in this stage in their lives, are, are kind of opposites. 
Pierre wants a normal life, a stable life, and John is basically out seeking control and chaos to a certain degree. The, the idea, and you guys can tell me if it's something you think I could layer in more or imply more, but is that they, they bonded over the disappearance, the death of Jean. So it really was like a trauma bonding thing that kind of pushed them together. Cause they, you're right, Alex, they wouldn't have a ton of reasons to be in the same place at the same time, except for if they both needed somebody who knew exactly what they were going through at the exact same time. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I feel like if it is about them bonding together over Jean's death, then it is even more intriguing now that Jean isn't dead. Right. Like John is back in town. So what does that speak to in regards to their relationship? Um, so that's definitely if that is the emotion that you're going after, then that's another opportunity there where you can sort of milk that tension between them. Which brings me to page, I want to say, 41, where I'm not a huge fan of uh, Pierre shoving Louise in a closet. Uh, I feel like it is kind of a cliche and takes uh, away ownership from her. So I feel like there's something more interesting there to be done. I don't necessarily have a pitch there, but I feel like, I mean, the bad version would be her herself putting herself in the closet, but even that I don't feel is right. But just something in terms of finding the way Louise reacts to Jean arriving in the bar, as opposed to just the way Pierre reacts, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, just giving her more agency in that moment. Here's a probably a bad quick fix for it. What if at some point Jean comes in, he's looking for guns. Pierre points him towards a trunk that has them. What if Louise hops into an adjacent trunk and then I could play up the whole like Jean's about to open it. <laughs> Like, it's kind of, I guess I'd play it for comedy. It might be a bridge too far. I don't know if you guys know what I'm, what I mean, but. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's a fun pitch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like a little bit of tension there. It might be a little too over the top though. Yeah. I, I'm kind of on the fence about this, to be honest. I feel like that's almost like a comedy beat as opposed to just the show that we're in. Uh, Totally. I don't know if it really fits. I mean, again, I like the, you know, I like the pitch, but in terms of the scene itself, I'm not sure if it services Louise as a character. It's kind of where my sort of bump was. No, yeah, I think you're right. I I just want to throw it out there. (laughs) It's a fun idea. I do it in the, the comedy version of this. Yeah, <laughs> do a whole slapstick draft. So on scene 39, scene 38, I really like the push-pull dynamic between Marchand and Jean, but I will say I kind of wanted it to be finessed slightly more in regards to Jean doing Marchand's bidding because he's another captain, and then ultimately Marchand agreeing to follow Jean's direction despite Jean hitting him in the face. So just tracking more Marchand, I guess, in that side where Jean is a bit emasculated in regards to Marchand and Marchand being the captain. So we get that. But Jean takes ownership at some point and hits Marchand in the face. So why would Marchand ultimately do his bidding? So that's kind of what the this is more subtle. Obviously, it's not like a huge like fix over here. But um, just tracking that a bit better, I felt like uh, would be a nice fix. Yeah, having him hit Marchand was something I went back and forth on a lot because he Marshawn would have to be a real pushover to let somebody, a new guy, hit him in front of his crew. But then I also kind of like the idea that Marshawn really is a pushover. He doesn't really have control of his men, as we find out, and that Jean can kind of come in and, for lack of a better term, just bully him, kind of alpha male his way into like this almost leadership position right away. But yeah, I think maybe seeing a bit more from Marshawn's perspective there could help. 
I mean, if uh, if Jean is bullying Marshawn, then I want Jean to get his comeuppance really quickly. And on that note, I actually have a pitch to Nick's bump at the end of Act 3. This is uh, page 49. As we mentioned before, it feels a bit not as impactful as you can make it. And I like the emotion you're going for in terms of Jean being trapped and uh, having nowhere to go. But what if uh, there's more active danger or more of a hazard for Jean to be left alone? And so, for example, scenes before... He hits Marchand and Jean tells him, Marchand, go over there to prep for whatever. And Marchand is like, okay, sure, we are going to get our man, my man, to follow you into battle. But first, I want you to scout the location and then I'll, I'll follow you with my men. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then Jean goes there at the end of Act 3 and then he hits a dead end. And he looks behind him to see the boat moving away, meaning he's really alone there, buried in crap, in mortal danger, maybe in some capacity. But basically, he's left alone. And what is happening is that the ship ship is moving away, which we'll learn later. The ship is moving away to set up for the attack, meaning Marchand is there to do his job. He's there to bomb the F out of this place and get the person or kill the person or whatever. He's not waiting on Jean, meaning... Jean now has a clock, right? He's realizing that moment, end of Act 3, all those things coming together. They're prepping the attack imminently, meaning he has a clock now. He needs to get Marie ASAP or he's dead. And so at least we have a, a consequence to Jean taking ownership, going to and hitting Marchand. Marchand placating Jean, saying, sure, I'll follow you. And then ultimately, end of Act 3, he's effed because these people are moving into battle. Yeah, I think that that could work. Yeah, he drops him off, says, you know, signal us when you get to the right spot, I'll send a boat. You know, a little shot of Marshawn just like completely brushing him off and giving the order to get underway. I, I like that. For sure. I think that's a fun dynamic to kind of play out there and a little more tension and surprise. Well, since you mentioned having a shot at Marshawn, I would actually pitch, uh, speaking of cuts and everything like that, I would cut scenes 42, 50, 52, 56, and 58, which are basically all the scenes with Marchand and the Red Shirts for multiple reasons. First of all, I think it's much more impactful if we play that whole sequence, Act 4, through Jean and Marie's perspective. First of all, to preserve the surprise shock value of when the bomb drops, literally. So you don't really know when the bombing is happening. You are in Jean's shoes. It could happen any second. We need to get Marie out ASAP. Also, you would start the Act 4 with your leads, Jean, and not guest stars, which is always kind of a red flag. Um, but moving even to scenes 56 and 58, which are the battle scenes, we don't really have any emotional investment in seeing red shirts killing other red shirts. So again, the focus of that sequence in my mind should really be about Jean separating from Marie and trying to get his target or all that emotions and really focusing on that. Maybe if you really want to see the battle that he could glance out of the window and see what's happening. I like the awesomeness of seeing people battle each other, but but in terms of the emotion of that sequence, I'm not sure what you're getting out of having those battle sequences, if that makes sense. Yeah, I follow you. It, it really is just <laughs> for the the fun and the spectacle of it. So I get where you're coming from. It, it'll be painful to cut it, but I, I think you make some valid points that it, yeah, emotionally it doesn't factor into the plot at all. Uh, it doesn't really push us in any direction. It just would look awesome. I mean, if you want to conserve that, you can collapse those scenes, right? Where you get Jean and Marie and those people involved within the fights. At least you get the fight and Jean Marie. But emotionally, we need to track those people first before cutting away to red shirts. So if you want to introduce that battle, I agree. It's awesome to have that. But then I would want that folded together, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, here's a fix for that. At one point, 
Argue, uh tells his men, get Marie to safety, get her out of here or whatever. Maybe to get to a safe place, they have to go through part of the courtyard. So Jean is pursuing and battling and we have the battle going on around them while they're trying to get from point A to point B, whatever safe room or whatever she's at. But yeah, at least then there would still be some of the, <laughs> I guess I'm just bloodthirsty. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you are like uh, Jacques. <laughs> yeah. I think you can kind of play it out. Like Alex is saying, keeping it in the POV of Jean and Marie for a little bit. But then, yeah, like you said, maybe we have a fun kind of like courtyard sequence where they've got to like escape or, you know, get get from somewhere to somewhere else. And that's when they're running through and you have, that's, you have the red shirts coming in incidentally and being killed and attacked and that, and that sort of thing. I think that's a, a good way to solve it. Keep a little bit of both. I'm picturing it like the uh, battle of the bastard scene with that tracking shot with Jon Snow, just going through the, the chaos of that battle. I think it'd be fun to watch Jean kind of pursuing Marie through something that crazy cannonballs flying by all that fun stuff. Exactly. And to that point, I mean, that sequence is through a particular character's perspective, looking around to see other characters that we know around. So uh, it's all rooted in that character's POV. Um, I will say maybe I would flip around. And in that whole sequence, I really wanted Marie to have a lot more ownership than Agwe or anybody else. Especially around, I think, scene 57 is when you have Marie standing frozen in fear. I really feel like you want to establish her as the opposition of Jacques uh, and basically a superwoman with out-of-this-world powers. So you don't want her to sort of seem as a coward afraid of a couple of random people fistfighting. So that's one thing where I really wanted a lot more ownership from Marie taking ownership even if it's Agwe giving advice to uh, Marie or something like that, but Marie should be the one being like, this is the way we do these things. Even if you can sense some fear, I'm not saying she's a stone cold woman or anything like that, but having her be the one driving the plot or what's going forward to Jean's dismay, as opposed to Marie reacting to things, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. That was actually something that was one of those times where you, you write a sentence and then you instantly feel weird about it. So I kind of figured that would be something I'd revisit. It was like kind of a logistical fix at just that line in particular. Cause I was like, why wouldn't she just leave if Jean's like busy in this battle sequence? I was like, what? And I guess she's frozen in fear, but you're right. She, if she doesn't have to leave, if she's the one giving the orders and stuff and gives her more, more agency and, and makes her, yeah, just strengthens her. Also, she's the one uh, per Louise to want to help Jean at some point. So I would say around scene 53, uh, page 53, uh, I actually prefer the original sequence that you had in the outline where you had, I think, Marie meeting Jean face to face for the first time before the boom, right? Or am I just misremembering this? Well, either way, I really feel like this is a golden opportunity to have Marie and Jean interacting before bombs go off. Uh, because you can, first of all, trigger that bombing whenever you want. Uh, and I'd rather preserve Marie Jean meeting for a moment and you can do something really interesting there, even if it's interrupted seconds later, as opposed to them getting separated without ever meeting. And maybe Marie doesn't even know that she's being pursued by Jean and doesn't know this information until later. You can get that out of the way immediately. And maybe Marie now knowing that Jean's there, there's a reason why she's doing the actions that she's doing later on to preserve Jean or whatever it is, because she's helping Louise, right? So like, at least at that point, she already knows before the bomb goes off that Jean's here. I see that. Do you think it would be a bridge too far to have her, if Jean hops down, to have Marie like completely not surprised, like like it's a trap or something for Jean? I'm trying to think if that makes 
Because even if she knew that an attack was coming, she wouldn't necessarily, unless she really has magical power, she wouldn't necessarily know that John was going to somehow sneak in. But maybe showing that she's more prepared than we think. But th- didn't we talk about last time a version where Jean is face to face with Marie and he has that weapon and he pulls the trigger and it doesn't work? Or I mean, that was my pitch, but there was the other version that was like basically the bombing happens in that moment, almost as if she predicted the bombing or something like that, where you can still have that moment of showing Marie's otherworldly powers, so to speak, and leaving it ambiguous. But at the same time, emotionally, what I want is Jean and Marie to interact. Even if it's for a split second, it's them meeting eyes and we get a sense of the tension there or whatever it is. But getting that moment, that is probably going to be interrupted, obviously, moments later. But at least we get that moment between the two of them before the crap hits the fan, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, could, I could work that in. Because, yeah, like you said, the cannons go off whenever I decide they do, so... <laughs> Next up is scene 68 around page, on page 57, rather. This is a moment where Jean gets smacked on the head again, which is something we highlighted last time, where I think you can have, in that moment, Jean collapsing from the necrotic wound, and that being what KOs him, as opposed to Jean being smacked in the head, and really either end act four on Jean being knocked out because of the wound, or you can sort of end on scene 50, uh, 63 rather where he's uh, screaming in pain and Jean faints like the, essentially ending on black as opposed to having the same moments that we had I think an act before or two acts before where we cut to black and then we're back in another scene uh, if you had an act out on cut to black it, it doesn't feel repetitive from a prior moment of a cut to black during a scene as opposed to if you have the same moment of cutting to black then another scene that felt uh, a bit repetitive for me if that made any sense no i got you because yeah um so basically just bumping 61 and 62 to the beginning of act five yeah that's one pitch the other pitch would be ending at four on scene 63 that's more of a weirder vibe which i actually like personally but kind of ending act four on you know so jean collapses from the wound it's festering that's obviously been building up to this moment we've seen throughout the episode that the wound has been festering and so forth so Jean collapses, then we get uh, scene 62, right? Like he collapses scene 62. Right. That's uh, condensed with scene 63. Scene 62 and 63 in this version are one scene. And we get this very interesting, uh, bizarre, you know, Haitian Creole and all the shadows and all the, all these things are happening end of act four. And it's like, what? This is a different show, but I like it. I'm like, what? what's happening here? And then uh, off of Jean scream or whatever, you end the act. And then the beginning of Act 5, it's like bright sunlight beams through open windows. It's like, whoa, this is like, a, you know, I, it's a bit of a weirder vibe, but I, I personally like the transition there. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can totally see that working. And my only problem, because that's something I kind of considered, but was where to end. That was something I went back and forth on. It feels like it leaves Act 5 as I have it now. I mean, obviously, I could, I'd have to bolster it because it feels a little bare and even if I bolster it, it feels like then all the, the bulk of the drama for the episode, like the real fun stuff is done. So that's the only issue I have with it. But it does make more sense, I think, to have it just carry, like, you know, have Act 4 and with the scream and the faint and all that. You, uh, sorry, I'm confused. You're saying you don't have enough for the final act if you remove the dream sequence? If Just if I bump that up, yeah, into Act 4. I would, not removing it. Yeah, if I, if I remove it from Act 5, I just feel like, I don't know, it just makes Act 5 boring to me, I guess. Um, but that, 
it's probably something I have to work out. I mean, the final act is really the epilogue in a lot of ways. So, I mean, personally, I don't find, I think there's a lot of interesting things there. I think the conversation between Jean-Marie is something we've been waiting for the whole episode, assuming you built to that point, right? So, like, we should feel that's a very compelling scene in the same way that the Jean and Jacques scene is compelling because those are the two super people speaking to our lead. And he's been trying to get to this woman for so long, which is, I guess, another reason I would pitch up prior to this that uh, Jacques doesn't share all the exposition about Marie. You keep that hidden for a little bit. But that would be the interesting point where Jean and Marie interact and we get more of that, you know, that story. And I think Nick had a point before this podcast about, I think this is the scene where Marie asks, who is the real Jean? And that's really what the show is about. That's really what this whole sequence is about. That's really what this whole episode is about, is defining who Jean is. And so that whole scene is compelling for me, The you know, if you play it right, that this is Jean being faced to, with the question that, who are you, Jean? Yeah, no, I, those are good points. Yeah, that makes sense. I just sometimes I get so hung up on the, the spectacle of stuff. I latch onto that and forget about character stuff. But uh, I hear what you're saying. You're right. I think you're right. Yeah. No, that line definitely stood out to me. And that's what I was sort of saying to Alex is, you know, when she says, like, who is the real Jean Lafitte? I'm like, well, that's sort of basically the central thematic question of this entire series. You know, it's about his his, his legacy, his reputation, um, who he was, who he is now, who he's going to be, you know, his identity and, and what people think of him and his ego and all that sort of thing. So I think that's a really important scene for the whole theme of the show. So definitely don't be afraid to kind of delve into it and make the most of it. Absolutely. And I feel that you could play up. I had a, a comment about how I wanted more of a contrast between Jacques and Marie. Well, that's the opportunity because Jacques is someone who talks to someone out of uh, Machiavellian reasons to use them as pawns. Marie isn't that way. Marie is the opposite. Marie is asking, who is the real Jean? Who are you? I want to get to know you. She's a, not a therapist, but almost getting there in her weird ways. So she's there to help people as opposed to use them, at least hopefully. So those are the moments where you have, you know, when you have Jean speaking to Marie that are compelling to me as a viewer, as much as I like the spectacle of it, uh, when I'm reading a script, I'm not watching a spectacle or right? I'm just reading a script. So I want those interesting character moments to really show this show is different from all other shows, not because bombs are exploding, but because Marie is such a unique character that speaks to Jean, who's such a unique character. Yeah, you guys are absolutely right. All right. Uh, just a, a few final thoughts over the final scenes. Uh, so first of all, I had a, a sort of a clarification question around, I think, page 6162. Jean is a pirate who's uh, sailed a hundred seas. So I wasn't sure if how well versed should he be about voodoo lore, uh, because I seem to remember in our first session, maybe you mentioned how voodoo is much more of a newer thing and Marie's introducing voodoo. And if that is the case, then I want the fact that voodoo is a new thing to be clearer in the script. It's not that voodoo was new because, you know, voodoo started in, in Haiti and it's been around for a long time, but Marie was... She brought it to New Orleans, but you're right that she didn't bring it to New Orleans. She popularized it to the degree that we all know it today. But you're right that Jean should probably have a passing familiarity with it just because he's a worldly guy. But he still wouldn't necessarily know what a grigri bag is. I, I get what you're trying to say. Is maybe just clarify that a little bit, what he knows, what he doesn't know. 
Yeah, maybe. I I mean, I bumped on the Grigory bag because of this, but it doesn't have to be solved within the Grigory bag thing. It's much more, I am thinking of Jean as a pirate who sailed, like I said, a hundred seas. He's seen the world. So he should have some familiarity with voodoo much more than probably the rest of this cast, at least in theory. So that's kind of what uh, I was getting at. But, and you can play it wherever you want. It didn't have to be this moment. It was more in general, the way he's reacting to things and so forth. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to think about because it does make sense that out of anybody, he would be obviously besides Marie and maybe Louise now because she's entrenched herself with Marie. Yeah, he should probably know a little bit more than he seems to know right now. I think he can kind of be our audience's way in. He knows just enough about it to call out what it is and get the appropriate exposition, but uh, not quite enough that uh, he's already an expert and would never need to kind of get into that. So. Right. Yeah. He knows as much as probably the average person does today, just without the benefit of the internet and, you know, hundred years of pop culture. Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings us to a couple of final points on uh, page uh, 62, 63, 64, the big scene with uh, Mauricio and Jacques. This is a scene that Nick highlighted before where currently this is the moment where Mauricio learns that Jacques or rather Jean lives and, and so forth. Even logistically and logically, it's hard for us to believe that Mauricio was literally in the same room as Jean in that pivotal scene in the ball where both Jean and Mauricio made public fools of themselves. And only now Mauricio learns that Jean is alive. So definitely downplay this and play up much earlier as we talked about that Mauricio knows about Jean, or at least this concretizes uh, the fact that he knows that Jean's here. I would say the emotion here is much more the fact that uh, Mauricio now knows that Jacques had Jean in his grasp. And instead of uh, giving Jean to Mauricio, Jacques used uh, Jean. So it's like, what What are you doing here? I thought we were in bed together and you were going to give me Jean, but now you're using him? What's happening here? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because that is the conflict really is that you know, that it seems that Jacques has taken John under his wing a little bit, obviously undermining what Mauricio would like to do. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I, as we mentioned, I kind of gave this note in the last version as well. And it just feels like either, you know, if we do have this confrontation, it shouldn't necessarily be about the first, you know, this is not the first time he's become aware of his existence. You know, we've, we've put Mauricio in there a little bit more earlier, and then this is more about their dynamic and uh, what's kind of shifting here. Whereas, you know, especially in the previous draft, it sort of felt a little bit perfunctory of sort of like, now we're catching the audience up on the fact that these two people know this information rather than it being its own kind of a narrative purpose in the scene. No, I, I got you. All right, Nick, you had thoughts on the end? Yeah. At the ending, uh, you know, I mentioned again last time that I really like this whole thing of the, you know, the sun kind of dawning, it's a new start, all that sort of thing. But uh, some of the dialogue here, I felt like wasn't exactly as close to the theme as, as it could be. You know, you're mentioning stuff about, I can't face it alone. You're not alone. You never have been. For that to be the final words of the script, it feels like that should be the theme. And I don't necessarily think that's the theme of this. It's kind of what we talked about before, like who is the real Jean Lafitte? And this is the moment where he is going to uh, reinvent himself or you know, have a sort of rebirth or uh, decide who he's going to be or whatever that happens to be. So I think that the, the dialogue around this should be a little bit more focused around his identity and his legacy and his reputation and what he's about to set out to do rather than you know his brother's got his back. That's a really good point because that's something after I wrote it, I, I started second guessing it um, and I couldn't come up with a fix in time. I wanted to make sure you guys had some time to read it before we talked, but you're right because that, that's something that stood out to me too. So I'm, I'm definitely going to revisit that and yeah, probably layer in more stuff about the legacy of it because that is really what, what Jean's after. 
at the end of the day. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Right. Much more of a, a drive in terms of what Jean's going to do next. Because as it stands, it's a bit too upbeat almost, which doesn't fit at all the tone of the show because the show is so gloom and doom almost a, a lot of time with, you know, some fun moments. But this moment should really be heightening the bittersweet nature of what's happening and Jean driving towards his legacy and perhaps vengeance. Maybe there's a bit of ambiguity about, you know, what he's going to do when he catches Mauricio. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, this was a long uh, dig into this uh, first draft of a script, but uh, that's how we do it on Paper Team and uh, in writers' rooms around the world, uh, at least in uh, LA. (laughs) Uh, We go uh, deep, but uh, thoroughly. I will briefly mention at the end, uh, since we've talked about some opportunities of trimming and so forth throughout this episode, uh, obviously this is a first draft, so it's a bit longer, uh, but uh, honestly, I really feel you are in a great place in a lot of those things. Despite the length of the notes, I don't feel personally it's a lot of like huge, you know, changes. It's really more that second pass to add emotions and character in some moments. And overall, especially if you collapse some dialogue and some scenes as we've discussed, you can easily uh, trim maybe like five to seven pages overall and get it just over 60 pages or something like that. So lots of uh, great stuff to look ahead. There's going to be some stuff coming out. So hopefully we get it. I wanted it to be a little closer to 60, but yeah, I think, I think it'll end up there. I'm just glad to have got it all out. You know, it's kind of it may be a little bit more than a vomit draft. I went back a couple times and shuffled things around. But uh, yeah, it feels good just to have the first draft out. Yeah. No, I think as far as first drafts go, it's it's really strong. And I think the outlining kind of helped with that. And uh, yeah, we're excited to kind of see the, the next pass on it. I think it's already in a pretty good place and will only get better. Well, on that note, what uh, do you feel the next step will be? Um, I think we're just going to, I'm going to go through and clean this up. Like I said, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast a bunch of times to get all the notes down again, probably spend a week just absorbing the notes, which has kind of been the th- like what I've been doing after each uh, episode we've recorded and then get into it and clean it up. I, I even caught some typos just now that like are just destroying my soul. Yeah, to be clear, we didn't really mention the typos or anything because at this stage, obviously things are going to be shifted around, but I'm sure next round or something like that will highlight some of the typos. What an exciting episode, highlighting typos. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean on the podcast, I meant more afterwards. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patreon podcast, our cheat sheets, the exclusive Paper Team mentorship updates just for our Patreon supporters. So get on it at paperteam.co slash Patreon. And we can keep producing a great show for you every week and uh, episodes about typos. So thanks, as always, for tuning in. Uh, And thank you to Ben for all of your hard work on this draft. Thank you guys for having me. This has been a really great educational process for me, and I'm excited to see it through. Unlike Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that shade, uh, you can get all the show notes uh, and specifically the pilot script for this episode at paperteam.co slash 201. Hopefully you didn't wait until this moment to read the pilot. Otherwise, it would be a very boring episode. But anyway, uh, as always, I'm also on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And uh, where are you again, Ben? I don't know. I said it in a previous episode, so just go back. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I don't want to talk to you anyway. So, <laughs> uh, Anyway, so if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions about this process, your process, anything at all TV writing related, you can always send that to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, well, next week is our last episode of 2020. We've done so much this year, and we'll be celebrating this with our 2020 holiday special next week. All right, so tune in with your holiday cheer for that one. I 
we'll see you then.